And if you will, turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation as we continue our study through the Word. So you'll remember that Revelation has three sections. First was the revelation of Jesus Christ himself there on the, on the island of Patmos. And that was recorded in chapter one for us. And, and then you'll remember John was instructed to write the seven letters to the seven churches. And so we looked at that. And then beginning in chapter four, the third section, the things that will yet be. And so the prophetic portion of the scriptures of, the, of Revelation really begins uh, in, in chapter four moving forwards. And so you'll remember in chapter four, that started with a come up here and we saw the rapture of the church. John is caught up into the very throne room of God. And we saw in chapter four, description of the throne room, the throne of God. And God was seated upon that throne. And you'll remember that he emitted light, white light and red light, the Sardis stone and the Jasper stone. And, and then there was the rainbow that was over the throne in an emerald hue. And you'll remember that there was 24 lesser thrones that were around the great throne. And there were elders seated upon that. And John looked up and there were the, the four cherubim that now were flying about singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The seven spirits, the Holy Spirit was represented there in the throne room as well. The sea of glass was there. But then John noticed uh, that there was a scroll that was in the Father's hand. And there was a powerful angel whose booming voice went throughout all of creation. Who is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals? The scroll was the title deed to the earth, and you'll remember there was no one worthy. There was no one able in all of creation. And John begins to weep, and he begins to sob and convulsively and you remember that one of the elders says to him, do not weep, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the seed of, of David, he is able. And John looks and he's expecting the lion of the tribe of Judah, but instead he sees a, a lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. And he comes and takes the scroll. And you'll remember that, that there was the great rejoicing now in heaven as Jesus Christ now has the scroll. And he begins to open up the seals. And as we get to this sixth chapter, we are going to see that each one of those seals, so the scroll was written on the inside, and then when it was rolled up on the outside, like the title of what that was in it, and then it was sealed with seven different seals across it. As each seal is broken, as he is opening up the scroll, with each breaking of a seal, there is a corresponding event that is going to be taking place uh, on earth. And so John is going to be allowed to see the corresponding events to the breaking of each of the seals. There are seven seals in this sixth chapter. We are going to look at the first and six uh, of the breaking of those seals. So we begin Revelation chapter six, 
verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So here is this vision, and the vision is representing a reality now on the face of the earth. He beholds a, a white horse and one sitting on a white horse and, and he has a crown and he has a bow. Now, we know that when Jesus Christ returns that he comes on a what? He comes on, on a white horse and he comes with power and authority. And so the question is, is this horse rider, the first horse rider, is this Jesus Christ? And the answer is no, this is the Antichrist. And so this is one now who is going to rise up. The breaking of that first seal coincides uh, with uh, the elevation and the prominence now of the Antichrist. I want you to notice uh, something here with me. Notice that it has a bow, but it doesn't have a, there's no arrow on it. So it means that he has position of authority, but he's not a man of war. This interpreted now means that he is going to be a masterful politician. He is not going to be a general that is going to battle his way into his office and into his position. He has authority, he has a crown, he comes on a white horse. He comes as a man of peace. I want you to know that much is written about the Antichrist. He has different names. Antichrist, he is the son of perdition. He is also the beast out of the sea. But he is going to arise to govern over the world. We see that he is the final dictator, the final satanic dictator, who will be even more terrible than all of the previous dictators have been. He will rule over men as a false messiah. And he's going to lead men in an organized rebellion against God. But he's coming as this man of peace. He's going to have a plan. He will come as an economic genius. He will come with a vision. And the whole world is going to be captivated by him. He is going to have charisma in spades. He is going to have a tremendous likability factor. He, he will be a type of person that, that you would like to have over for dinner and talk to. He, he's going to have more likability than Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> and so he's just going to be this, this great guy. He's got a vision and the whole world is going to want to follow after this vision that he has. But we see here that the first breaking of this seal brings this dictator now to prominence. I want you to notice something with me. That the breaking of the seal and the bringing of Antichrist into prominence takes place after the church has already been raptured. We are already in heaven when the seals begin to be broken and when the Antichrist is going to move into place. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, 
Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The one who is restraining the Antichrist and the one who is restraining evil is the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us uh, as believers. Now, when the church is raptured, the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives uh, is going to be gone. And now, the Antichrist will have no opposition whatsoever. The righteousness of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us uh, will now be with the bride in heaven. And so these events take place after the rapture of the church. We see that there is going to be this final seven-year period on the face of the earth. It is known as the 70th week of Daniel. And the Bible tells us uh, that in this 70 weeks, that there are 70, now it says weeks, a week is a, a clump of seven. It is 70 sevens, and so it is 490. 490 years. And in this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about the Messiah. It talks about his first coming and his second coming. It says that from the day that the command is issued of Artaxerxes uh, to go and to rebuild the temple. Now, Artaxerxes, from the day the command to go and rebuild the temple is given, to 483 years. There's 69 weeks, and then there's one final 70th week. It says, at the end of 69 weeks of years, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, is going to make his entrance into Jerusalem. It says, but he will be cut off. And so, if you go 483 years from the day that Artaxerxes gave the command, remember that the children of Israel were in captivity in Babylon. And so it was Artaxerxes who gave the command for them to return and, and to rebuild their land. If you go from that date, the 483 years, you will come to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday when he makes his official presentation to the nation. It says, but he will be cut off. And then it says that there will be one final week of years. And so there's going to be one final seven-year period. This is now what's known as the tribulation period. The tribulation period, that seven years, is going to be broken into two halves. The first half of the tribulation, peace, peace, peace. And everybody is going to get along. But then halfway through that process, uh, there is going to be what is known as the abomination, which causes desolation, that now causes God to stand up, and that is when the judgments are going to start to be poured out on the face of the earth. So there is this man of peace, this antichrist that rises up. He's a masterful negotiator. He's going to have a vision. He's going to be a man with a plan. And the whole world is wanting to go uh, after this plan that he has for prosperity and for peace. The Bible also teaches that halfway through the tribulation, the abomination that causes desolation is that the antichrist is going to enter into the temple itself and he is going to stop the sacrifices that are going on in the temple. He is going to declare that he himself is God, and he's going to demand that everybody worship him as God. This is the abomination now before God that brings about the desolation, the judgments that we are going to see that is going to come. But if the Antichrist is going to come into the temple, it means that there must be a temple. 
Now, Israel was regathered in 1948. Ezekiel, dry bones and prophecy when the nation was called back together and, and took possession of their land. But they're a nation without a heart because the heart of Israel is and always has been the what? The temple. It is the worship of God. Today, there is no orthodox practicing Jew because underneath the Mosaic law, you had to offer your sacrifices on a yearly basis at the temple. There is no other place that you're allowed to offer your sacrifices. Jews have synagogues throughout the entire world, but a synagogue is just the local community that comes together to worship and to study the Torah uh, and the Holy Scriptures, but they're not able to offer their sacrifices. So they're not able to practice the Mosaic law and their own religion. And so chief amongst issues in Israel, when you go there, amongst those that are wanting and desiring to follow after God, is the temple. Now, the nation took over the land in 1948, but one piece of real estate uh, is not theirs, and, and that is the top of the Temple Mount. Now, when Herod beautified the temple, he built these huge retaining walls and then leveled this all off and then beautified the temple. The Temple Mount today is enormous, but there are two mosques that sit on the, the Temple Mount itself. The Dome of the Rock Mosque is one, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque is the other. And so here are these two mosques, and it is Muslim controlled. The Temple Mount is in the authority of the Muslims today. And so how could it be that the temple will get rebuilt when you've got two mosques sitting there on the Temple Mount itself? Today you hear constantly the peace for land, the West Bank and Gaza, and you hear the Palestinians and the Israelis, and it's an international fight over the territory in Israel. How in the world, given that they can't even agree upon the pieces of land that, that are nothing from a holy site, how will they be able to share in this Temple Mount? I want you to know that there is plenty of room up on the Temple Mount. If you go to Israel, sometimes you're able to go up on the Temple Mount and walk across it, and then other times you're not, depending upon the, uh, the political state that's going on over there. But if you ever get a chance to get up onto the Temple Mount itself, you will see that both mosques are over on the eastern side. And the western side of the Temple Mount, there is plenty of room to throw a temple up. Incidentally, in Ezekiel's uh, instructions of the rebuilding of the temple, it is also just interesting to note that, that God tells Ezekiel that when the temple is rebuilt, do not rebuild the court of the Gentiles, but leave that given over to the Gentiles. It's interesting that if you rebuilt the temple, 
where the mosques are located today would be considered the court of the Gentiles. But somebody will need to come to rise to the prominence to be able to negotiate this masterful diplomatic piece of, of finally getting the Middle East uh, into a state of peace that allows the, the recognition uh, of the Palestinians and Muslims, but allows the Jews to be able to rebuild their temple. And so the temple will be rebuilt and the sacrifices are gonna start again. There will be a consecration of this temple and a great celebration will be going forth. But halfway into that peace accord is when the Antichrist is going to rise up and go into this temple. So the first seal is broken in heaven and John watches and here comes this white horse and here comes the, the rise uh, of the Antichrist. And Daniel's vision of the statues, uh, which are the empires that are going to rule the world. There was the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron. And then there was the clay and iron mixed together. The bronze was the Babylonian. The silver was the Medo-Persian. The, the bronze, uh, or the silver was the Medo-Persian. The bronze was the Greek, the Grecian Empire. And, and following the Grecian Empire, the legs of iron were the Roman Empire. But then the feet are clay and iron mixed together. It's a revived Roman Empire that's put together, but clay and iron mixed together and give you the form of feet, but don't give you the, the strength uh, of iron itself. So it is going to be a coalition of, of these 10 nations that are going to be put together. Don't have the strength. We see in chapter six uh, of Daniel, he, he talks about now how in this 10 nation confederacy that there is going to be three nations that are gonna rise up out of this 10 nation confederacy and then out of those three nations, one horn is going to rise up and that horn is the Antichrist. When you look at what is happening in the EU, the EU is the revived uh, Roman Empire represented of that dream. And the three strongest uh, nations that are in the EU right now, Germany has the largest uh, economy, England, Britain has the second largest economy, and France has the third largest economy. Those are the three strongest nations uh, that there are within the EU today. It is interesting that we are watching the, the wranglings uh, of England, of Britain, as it is seeking to exit out of this European Union and the European Union is negotiating to, to keep them back in together. And, and so we are seeing all of the foundational work happening right before our very eyes. Eventually, there is gonna be some type of three nation leadership that is gonna form uh, out of the EU. All of these things are now in place as we are watching the very fulfillment of the things that John was seeing from heaven in these visions here. And so the first uh, horse, the white horse, the uh, Antichrist rising up uh, to preeminence. In verse uh, three it says, and when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see, and another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. And so we see that this 
individual that is on this second vision, this second fiery red horse. Notice that he doesn't bring war and destruction. Notice all he does is he just removes the peace. And when he removes the peace, then, then all the wars break out in and of themselves. Peace between men and nations is a gift from God. Peace in your home, peace in your marriage, peace in your family, and peace of brother to brother, loving your neighbor. This is a gift uh, from God. And we see the, uh, this second rider now satanically energized. He removes that gift. He removes the peace. And, and then we see the natural order of man. Conflict is the natural carnal order of man. And when God's hand is not upon us and when peace is not upon us, then we will see that conflict take place. We live in the age of war and conflict. Since World War II, the last great war, there have been more than 150 wars since World War II of one kind or another. At any given time, there are dozens of wars that are currently in conflict with one another. But we see here that there is going to, to be now this great unrest and, and the people are going to kill one another and this unrest is ultimately going to culminate in the battle of Armageddon. In Israel, if you go up onto Mount Carmel, you will overlook uh, this valley. It is the valley of Megiddo. Megiddo sits at the entrance to this valley at, uh, at one end. And it is in this valley where the kings of the east, so this is China, it says that the kings of the east will mount a 200 million man army and that they are going to come against the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the Western power. And so the Western power underneath the Antichrist is going to come against the Eastern kings that are going to unite and try and overthrow the Antichrist and the forces of Antichrist. They are going to come from the east, and it says that they're going to dry the Euphrates River up, and this 200 million man army is going to cross the Euphrates and start marching towards the west, and that Antichrist is going to come and bring his armies, and they are going to come in, and they are going to meet in this massive valley. When you look over this, the Plains of Megiddo. Har means valley. Megiddo. Har Megiddo. Armageddon is where we get that word. It is the battle of Armageddon. It is the final war and conflict that is going to take place on a scale never before experienced in the history of the world. And it is at this battle that Jesus Christ himself is going to show up. And so this second rider, what does he do? He takes peace from the earth and we see now the conflict that continues to escalate and to grow verse 5 when he opened the third seal i heard the third living creature say come and see and so i looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand and i heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And so we see this third horse rider. Now, this vision here means that there is going to be famine on the face of the earth. 
Whenever there is conflict and war, and when the fields are no longer being plowed and sowed, but they are becoming theaters of conflict, then there is not going to be the harvesting of food. And when war is breaking out everywhere, there is going to come a food shortage that is going to take place. Remember that a denarius is a day's salary. A quart of wheat is enough to make a loaf of bread. If you want to make cheap bread, barley bread was the cheapest, grainiest bread that there is. It's the poor man's bread. You can make three loaves of barley, three quarts for denarius. A denarius is $100, $150. It means that a loaf of bread is going to be going for $150. This is the type of famine that is going to break out. But notice there is going to be an elite group that is going to be well supplied and well taken care of. The poor will be the giant class. And then there will be those that, uh, that are around the, the dictator and they will have opulence. Do not harm the oil and, uh, and the wine. And so we see this famine, but at the same time, we see that there will be the finer things for those who are in that category. The fourth seal, verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts uh, of the earth. And so the grim reaper, Death, uh, is now coming. And we see that following behind is Hades. Remember that Hades is the abode of the dead. And so it is like the grim reaper has a sack behind him and he's harvesting now all of the people that are dying during the tribulation and, and they're being sent to, into Hades. It says the power was given to them to bring the sword and death to a quarter of the people on the face of the earth. Hundreds of millions of people have been killed by dictators. Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, the communist regimes in China and elsewhere have killed hundreds of millions. But that is nothing compared to the death toll that is going to stack up during this short period of time. We see that the Battle of Armageddon, 200 million are going to come from the east and if that is matched by Antichrist forces, you're going to have almost a half a million people in the battle of Armageddon itself. But I want you to know that when it says a quarter of the earth is going to die, in April of this past year, the population in the world population hit 7.7 .7 billion people on the face of the earth. If you round that to eight, and call it eight billion. A quarter of eight billion is two billion people that are going to die during this period by famine, by battles, by wars, but also they are going to be persecuted and killed by the Antichrist as well. 
You remember that the Antichrist, when he rises up, is going to seize the economic and capitalism uh, of the world, and he is going to put into place the mark of the beast on the forehead and on the hand, and that anybody who will not take the mark of the beast is just instantly going to be killed. And so, feast, famine, and by sword, and by battle, and by conflict, uh, a quarter of the world's population is going to die. And so, we see now the, the fifth seal is opened up. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a, a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were was completed. So we see here that there is a group underneath the altar. I want you to know that there's different groups uh, in heaven. The first group in heaven is the Old Testament saints. Everybody who died underneath the old covenant in faith, uh, they are going to be there, and they're the Old Testament saints that are going to be in heaven. But then we have the church, the bride of Christ. And remember that the bride of Christ started on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. Peter preaches, 3,000 people get saved. That's the start of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. And so we see now that the church age, the bride of Christ, which is the church, that ends at the rapture of the church. And so anybody who dies after the rapture of the church is not added to the bride. The bride is the bride, and that ends at the rapture of the church. So we have the Old Testament saints, and then we have the bride of Christ, the, the church. Now, the people who after the rapture takes place, what's going to happen? So all believers are gone. And so what happens on the face of the earth is the left behind crowd. Those are the people that now find our Bibles. They find the tracks and, and all the things that we've been giving to them and sharing the gospel and the good news with them and, and they didn't have time. And when suddenly we all are gone, they're going to be like, where's that track again? And I want to I read that. They're going to be saying the sinner's prayer and accepting Jesus Christ. And, and now there is going to be all of the tribulation saints uh, that are going to get saved. But... Uh, to be a Christian in the tribulation and not take the mark of the beast, you will be executed if you are discovered. And so there is now going to be these tribulation saints that are going to quickly find themselves uh, in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So they're in heaven, but where do they go? They're, they're now being collected underneath the altar that is there, and they're crying out over the injustice of the Christians that are just being slaughtered here on the earth. And they cry out, how long, O Lord, is the injustice going to continue on the face of the earth? And, and he says, a little while longer till the number is complete, because then the tribulation is going to be over at the Lord's second coming. So that's going to be the third group in heaven. And then the tribulation saints, that group is done that's being collected. 
But then what happens is, is that there's going to be the judgment of the nations, and then Jesus Christ is going to establish uh, his rule and reign for a thousand years, the millennial reign uh, of Christ. And, and so people are going to be married, and babies are going to be born, and there's going to be a thousand years now where the nations are governed in righteousness under Christ. And so people are going to get saved, except Jesus as their Savior. And so now we have the millennium saints uh, that make up another group of saints that are going to be in heaven. And so all told together, you've got the Old Testament saints, you have the bride of Christ, the church, you've got the tribulation saints underneath of the altar, and then you will have the millennium saints. Uh, and so we can get to know all the different groups when we are spending eternity up there in heaven. It says that God gives them a, a robe uh, of white. And so uh, a robe is, is now showing honor. We see that white represents righteousness. And so the righteousness of Christ uh, and being honored with the robe. We see now that there is the, the sixth uh, the seal. And it says, and I looked and when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcock of hair and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain island was moved out of its place. So we see here that in the Bible, disturbances in the sky, we see that this is often connected with the coming of the Messiah. We see Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Zephaniah and Jesus himself all described such things as precipitating now his imminent return. Joel says that the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? And so it says that, that the stars are going to fall to earth like a fig tree that's ripe. So when a fig tree is really ripe, all you do is you just basically touch the fruit and it falls uh, into your hand. If a mighty wind uh, comes along and blows on the tree when the fruit is that ripe, the figs are now going to start hitting the earth uh, as the wind blows them right off the tree. He says, that's what's going to happen with the stars in the sky. I want you to know that scientists suggest that this would be consistent with a meteorite shower if a meteorite shower was to actually hit the earth. If you want to see the destructive nature of a meteorite, we don't need to go far in Arizona, in Winslow, Arizona, up in the high desert. There is an enormous crater from a meteorite, a single meteorite that hit the earth. And you can see the destructive nature of a single meteorite. To have a meteorite shower hitting the earth with this type of destructive capacity, there will be virtually no place that would be safe. There is no bomb bunker deep enough <laughs> that a meteorite uh, hitting it with a direct uh, impact uh, is going to keep you safe. 
And so it talks uh, here about the fact that, uh, that there is going to be these, uh, the heavens uh, that is going to be rolled up like a scroll. And it says in Isaiah, in chapter 34, and the stars falling from heaven, and he speaks about the earth staggering like a drunken man being moved uh, out of its place. Scientists uh, suggest that this is consistent with a polar axis shift that possibly occurred at the time of Noah's judgment. A shift in the Earth's axis of even a small margin can have cataclysmic geophysical changes on the face of the Earth. Today, if you will go to the south rim of the Grand Canyon, you will find sea marine life fossils 7,000 feet above sea level, the top of the rim, the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And so, what does that demonstrate? At one point in time, the Grand Canyon itself was uh, underneath the water, and this was the bottom of an ocean at one point in time. During the flood, it is suggested that there was a polar axis and shift uh, and that the global flooding of the waters breaking up from underneath and also the deluge from above uh, completely changed the, the surface uh, of the earth. We see that another polar axis shift occurring possibly from the meteorite shower, the impact of the meteorite and wobbling the, the earth with these collisions here could change the very axis of our earth. We see that John, when he's looking at this, it says that every single high mountain is brought down and every island is affected by this. And this on a global level here. It says in verse 15, in the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The kings of the earth will have no place to hide from a meteorite shower. The rich men will not be able to build a, a fortified defense for themselves. Commanders and mighty men, the military, will be helpless against a meteorite and shower. Every slave and every free man, everybody is going to have to fend uh, for themselves and they're going to run for the hills and into rocks and, and, and caves. And, and we see that they are hiding not only from the terror of the judgments, but they're also hiding from the face of him who sits on the throne. I like what one commentator said. He said, what sinners dread most, now that got my attention, what sinners dread uh, the most it said, is not death, but the revealed presence of God. That is what they fear the most. You see, their whole lives they've been denying that God exists. The whole lives they've been declaring that they will not be judged, that they are never going to have to give an account for their life. And when suddenly now the reality 
that the peace that God offered, they never received. And that now, rather than being welcomed by God, they are going to be standing before him to be judged by God. Is a terror that is greater than any of the cataclysmic judgments that are going on on the face of the earth. And so as we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for a minute back to verse 4, back to where this horse, this fiery red horse goes out, and, and it was granted to take peace from the earth. And I thought, isn't that the absolute description of the Antichrist? You see, the Antichrist opposes God and the things of God. And so peace is the gift that God gives to us. And, and so what does the Antichrist seek to do? What does the demonic realm seek to do to take peace from us? God wants your marriages to dwell in peace. God wants your families to dwell in harmony and in peace. God wants us to love one another as much as depends on you. Be on peaceable terms with all people. We're called to love everybody that is around us. We are to love our neighbor. And you'll remember that, uh, that the question was asked, well, who is my neighbor? And you'll remember that Jesus told us who our neighbor was by giving us the story of the Good Samaritan. So we are to love our neighbor. We are even called to love our enemies and to be at peace as much as depends on you. Peace is a gift to from God, and, and it comes through Jesus Christ. It begins first with peace with God. And so the enmity that we had with God, Christ has taken that away, and, and he is the one that brought peace into our hearts and into our lives. In Luke's gospel there in Bethlehem, with Jesus in the manger, as the angelic choirs and gather, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace now and goodwill toward men. We see that the announcement that in peace had arrived, that the one now who could bring peace to our hearts, to our souls, to our lives uh, was now born. You remember that not only was he born, but Jesus himself gave uh, his peace. In John's Gospel 14, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so the mm, peace of Christ that mm, passes understanding that will guard our hearts mm, and guard our minds. This is the peace that Jesus Christ comes to give to each and every one of our hearts and to each and every one of our lives. Isaiah said it this way, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the prince of peace. And God's desire is that the peace of Christ would rule over our hearts and our lives. 
What does the enemy seek to do to take your peace away? And what does the Lord seek to do to continue to establish you in perfect peace? Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. Dwell in the peace of Christ that he has given to each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work. And God, we ask that you would just continue to help us, Lord, to be able to walk in that peace that you have given to us. And Lord, the world will be judged, but we are separated and saved and loved. And so our future is bright and glorious to all who will receive that gift of peace, that gift of rescue, that gift of salvation. May we fully walk trusting. Lord, help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.